We live in a broken world, and we are broken people. Where can we find healing? Nehemiah faced unimaginable challenges and opposition, and yet through perseverance and faith, he accomplished great things for God. Like Nehemiah, the difficulties we encounter may seem impossible to overcome, but God gives us the grace to accomplish what he calls us to do. Exercising our faith in God is the beginning of the path to redemption. Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today. Uh, if you've been at Lakeside very long and you've listened to sermons, you know that uh, something that I don't do, I don't harangue about money, we don't draw all that out, uh, but I did want to just make a comment that it's pretty incredible how uh, this congregation has always reached to uh, do the things that God has put before us. And, uh, you know, we've built what's needed to be built and uh, physically and spiritually. And God's provided. And uh, we're like right almost to the finish line. I know 279 on an individual equation is, you know, nobody has that sitting around. But collectively, all the churches of, of Lakeside as a family that is within striking distance within the end of, by the end of the year. Uh, and so if you want to make a gift or if you want to help, uh, you know, we can become debt-free by the end of the year and start the new year uh, that way. So I'm just planting that seed, but we're not going to harangue about it, but it is a very important thing. And uh, we've really appreciated uh, everyone's collective efforts here to uh, do what God asks. So uh, this fall we've been in the book of Nehemiah, and I want you to think this morning about a time when you struggle to complete an enormous project. Think about something that the size of it alone demoralized you. You're like, oh, how am I going to even begin to eat this elephant, even a bite at a time? Maybe you eventually finished it. Maybe you didn't. But maybe that's a helpful frame of reference for this morning. Uh, one summer, keep in mind this was a long time ago, I was at a construction site and I was working where they were laying a foundation of a spacious home along the Kankakee River. And if you could afford to build a house along the Kankakee River, you're doing pretty good for yourself. And uh, I would have said beautiful home, but I said spacious home because this became an ugly pink mansion, literally. But we were working on this big mansion, and they just poured the foundation walls, and dump trucks had brought gravel uh, and created these mounds of rock, and the construction owner said, hey, would you grab a friend and come work on a Saturday? I got some work for you. He didn't tell me what it was. But when we arrived, the boss said, okay, here's what you're going to be doing all day. Grab these shovels, grab those wheelbarrows, set up these planks so you can go over the foundation wall. But we want you to move, take all this gravel from over there and put it right here in this crawl space. And I was like, oh. And uh, so we started. It was a, it was a big job. He may as well have just given us five-gallon buckets and asked us to drain the Kankakee River that day because that's what it felt like. We were so demoralized. So we scooped and scooped under the hot summer sun. We slowly filled the crawl space, but oddly, those piles of gravel grew larger throughout the day. It was so weird. But that same job, it would take in a bobcat mere hours, and it took us all day, and we, I don't even know if we put a dent in it. There was so much to do. So we're in the story of Nehemiah, and in your Bible, these builders had an insurmountable, demoralizing task ahead of them. It was just inherently demoralizing, just the, the largesse of it. 
And it's probably something bigger than any of us have certainly individually attempted to do or maybe even attempted to do with others. So imagine with bare hands sorting through tons of rubble from collapsed walls and burned out gates. You know, you'd build calluses up real fast doing that kind of work. Imagine salvaging whatever could be used and carrying away all the rest of the debris. Imagine that you're working on a wall running many miles and many lengths of it, some are even larger than this, but many lengths, the length of a football field. It takes a special kind of crazy to even begin a project uh, like that, don't you think? No power equipment, no inloaders, no air-conditioned bobcat, they make them air-conditioned now, uh, no Apple tunes, you know, in your ears, on your earbuds, no nicely machined shovel from Ace Hardware, or well-tuned wheelbarrow that actually has a working wheel, no uh, leather thick gloves to protect your hands, no Carhartt boots and gear and bib overalls to protect you, scarce water, scarce food, they were in a famine, constant threats of danger, and by the way, you can only work with one hand because you have to carry a sword in the other. Who wants to sign up to rebuild the wall? You can see how sometimes something can just be inherently demoralizing because of its largesse. I want you to ask yourself, when is a time, maybe it's right now, when you have been discouraged, discouraged, you found yourself wanting of the energy and strength to move on. Uh, discouragement, our experience of discouragement takes many forms. For example, there is physical discouragement. I don't know about you, maybe it's different for some of us, but I find physical discouragement probably the easiest to deal with. There have been many times where, like through a sheer force of will, I push this body to, to the finish line, whether it was, you know, shoveling gravel, whether it was bailing hay, running a jackhammer, moving boxes, stacking crates of stuff, shoveling snow. They build it up on the end of the driveway, the plows, and you have to push through the drift. Anybody, it's coming, the snow. But I love flipping that switch and going into beast mode because physically you can manage a physical education and just rest and, and find the strength and you can go back and tackle that thing or push through and your body will cooperate for the most part until you get, like you get older it cooperates less but you can still do it now it's not so easy to overcome mental discouragement when no matter how you, hard you try it's not just a matter of physical exertion a solution is needed and it's not something that you're coming up with you think on it and think on it and think on it, and the solution eludes you. Now, I'm probably thinking of those pre-YouTube days where now you go on YouTube and, you know, some little boy or some little girl, like somebody that you wouldn't even, they've solved something that you haven't even been able to figure, you know, like they, they changed the, uh, the thing in the, uh, you know, the, the, the food grinder under the sink, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I got to do it now. But before those days where you couldn't find a solution, you couldn't tap your network and get to a solution, Mental discouragement. How do I solve this thing? I need wisdom. God generously provides it without finding fault, but I need wisdom. And you're praying and thinking through something. Mental discouragement. Or mental discouragement in the sense that sometimes we're our own worst enemies. Sometimes a thing can become so large in our mind 
than it actually may be in reality, like those piles of gravel. You know, if I probably saw them today, I'd be like, you know, seriously, you know, that wasn't a very good sermon illustration. You kind of exaggerate. It was just a little pile, John, and it wasn't two dump trucks. It was probably just a pickup truck, you know, or whatever, you know. But sometimes in our mind, you know, something becomes like a Goliath-sized thing, and it really is just something that can be taken care of, but in our mind, we've defeated ourselves. There's also emotional discouragement. I think emotional discouragement is harder than just mental discouragement. Uh, When you're spent and your anxiety has just depleted all will, when you're just depressed and defeated and you don't even want to get up, demoralized, emotional discouragement, you lack the will. And I think even worse than that, and keep in mind, all these can stack up on each other, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual discouragement, I think, by far, second to none is the worst. And that's where, in the midst of your discouragement, you wonder, why, God? Why is this happening? Why am I in this circumstance? How long am I going to be dealing with this thing? Or even, where are you, God? Like, where are you? I'm praying. I'm seeking you. I need strength. I need wisdom. Like, I'm exhausted. I'm defeated. God, when are you going to show up? When the devil gets in your head and doubt takes hold spiritually, when the evil one is raising spiritual warfare alongside all the other stuff we've described, think about those moments. And some of you are in that moment right now. And we've been praying for you because you fill out the prayer and we pray for you. When I think about God's kingdom, when I think of the vast harvest fields, Like this time of the year, you look around and you see a physical harvest. Imagine if you were the only person with a combine and a wagon, and you could do your field maybe with a lot of effort, but you look around and all the fields need to be harvested, and you're the only, you feel like, sometimes we feel like, sometimes I feel like that in the face of the vast harvest. And I can feel overwhelmed and discouraged that there are tens of thousands of people just within a mile or two of my doorstep that don't know Christ, and I'm a preacher, and like, what am I going to do about that? Or in our world, there's billions of people that don't know Christ. That can be overwhelmingly discouraging. Sometimes just helping one person can be overwhelming. And yet, a whole church, a whole city, there's so much. So in Nehemiah 6, we shouldn't be surprised that discouragement visits Nehemiah in a very personal way. Discouragement visited the builders, but now it's going to the head of the, you know, the dog, so to speak. You know, Nehemiah is becoming discouraged. And here's what I'll say to you, is that if you want to go to one place in your Bible where you see how a person deals with discouragement, go to Nehemiah chapter 6. Look it up physically in your Bible and put a bookmark so you know where to go in your Bible when you need to think about how to work through something. In your Bible app, pull it up. Go through the effort. Don't just, it's going to be on the screen. But train yourself to find it where it is when you need it most. Nehemiah 6. Table of contents, like find it. Because our experience of discouragement, mental, physical, spiritual, whatever. But you have to realize that discouragement takes different faces. And... I think the evil one presents us with different faces of discouragement. 
And we've got to learn to recognize the different faces as they're presented so that we can deal with them and not be defeated by them. In Nehemiah 6, there's a whole bunch of different faces of discouragement. For example, sometimes discouragement takes the form of distraction. In verses 1 and 2 of Nehemiah 6, we read these words. That when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the whole rest of all of our enemies, they're getting too long to list. They heard that, I was re, that I'd rebuilt the wall and that there's no gap left in the wall. Though at the time we hadn't built the gates, but everything was getting to the finish line. Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message, Nehemiah writes. And this was the message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. That's the message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. And Nehemiah editorializes. He says, they were planning to harm me. You know, this is a very interesting message because sometimes a sermon preaches itself, a text preaches itself. And so come take a break and come to the valley of Ono. I was wondering, is that where that phrase comes from? Like somebody shows up or maybe you show up somewhere and someone says, oh, no. (laughs) Right? Uh, You don't want to be greeted that way. Or you, you pull into the parking lot at work and you see that person's car and the workday hasn't even started. And your body just goes, oh, no. It's kind of like lions approaching a buffalo herd and inviting one of the buffalo out. Let's go down to the river and play. You know, then they take a video of it and they show it on our YouTube feeds and we watch all these lions eating these buffaloes. Every once in a while, the buffalo gets the upper hand. But if you can separate that buffalo away from the pack, it's herd, and and isolate it and separate it out over here, then it's, you know, you, you can't take on the herd, but you can sometimes take on the buffalo. Think about how many times your phone's buzzed and you look down at it and you said to yourself, or you got an email, and you said, oh no. In the olden days, they would send forth messengers. And Nehemiah's enemies sent messenger after messenger. And it's funny when you read the text. It's not funny. It's how it works. One time, two times, three times, four times. They just keep ringing the the buzzer. They keep ringing the doorbell because they're hoping he's going to give them the answer that they want. And they're persistent as all get out. And that's exactly how discouragement works. You don't just get pinged once. You get pinged to the point of beyond annoyance. I love how Nehemiah responds. We can learn a lot from this man in so many ways. Verses 3 through 4. I sent messages back to them. I sent my own messengers back saying, I'm doing important work and I can't come down. Why should the work stop? While I leave it and go down to you clowns. You know, he doesn't say clowns, but I inserted that. But four times they sent me the same proposal, and I gave them the same reply. It needs to be said that there are many different types of distractions. A lot of our distractions are just inconvenient. They're morally neutral in a sense, and what I mean is a legitimate need arises, and we have to respond to it. Your family calls upon you. A friend needs help. An unforeseen problem arises, like a famine, for example, or a wall needs to be built. It's inconvenient, but like you deal with it on that level. But there's other kinds of distractions that we need to be alerted to, and those are the ones that I call malicious distractions. A malicious distraction is when you really lock into serving God. 
and God's enemies are on the run and, and God's doing great things and the kingdom is, is, is marching forward and God's enemies begin to circle. They have a vested interest that you not succeed, that you not build whatever you're building, not just physical but even spiritually, that you not preach, that you not challenge the status quo, that you not usurp their power uh, or their control. You know, in the early church, when the church was on the march and the gates of hell were being stormed by the kingdom of Christ and people were really responding and they wanted to please God and they desired holiness and they were letting Christ be their Lord and Savior and, 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 and really endeavored to live holy lives of, of godly character, it disrupted the corruptive power hierarchies of entire cities. And so a person would go to work with this newfound desire to serve and serve Christ and, and love him. And, and the boss would be like, what do you mean you don't want to cheat the scales today? You did it yesterday. Like, what happened? Or what do you mean you don't want to steal or kill or destroy? Or what do you mean you now love Jesus and you got to go to a Bible study or a synagogue, you know, go to the temple or wherever they were meeting? Remember Saul, the persecutor, trying to destroy the early church going house to house, what was he threatened by? The whole religious order had been turned up on its head. And his approach to that was divide and conquer. I'll go to the houses, I'll kill and destroy these folks. You know, as Christians, I think we assume that everybody is playing nice with us. With the mission of Jesus, I mean. That everybody's well-intentioned that we encounter. We don't always see what's behind the distraction. And sometimes there are people who are intentionally trying to divide our energies or even divide us or separate us out in order to defeat and destroy us. And we have to be very discerning that we are around people that have malicious motives. They're not against us so much as they're against God and his kingdom. They don't have a kingdom agenda. But they're out there. And they'd rather see us canceled than the work of God succeed. And so... Oh, no, right? Pay attention to what the distractions are. It's a face of discouragement. Now, once you start to deal with that face and you're like, I'm not going down. I'm going to keep working. Like, once you deal with that, the face of discouragement will morph. It will morph into some other form, not just distraction, but maybe disparagement. This is what happens in Nehemiah 6. We go from uh, distraction to disparagement. So let me ask you, not when you deserved it, by the way, but when you didn't deserve it. When have you ever been slandered? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been ridiculed? Have you ever been misrepresented? Have you ever had that happen? Some of you are having that happen right now. Have you ever had someone vilify your character, your intentions, your motives, and I'm not talking about when you deserved it. Again, I'm talking about like you are sincerely serving God and there are people that are seeing you completely differently than what you are before God. As a leader, Laura will tell you, uh, she'll tell you uh, this very readily. Not perfect, sometimes I can step in something and not just in my backyard. I use a riding lawnmower so I roll over it now, but you know, I'm not talking about that. But maybe I created... A misunderstanding. I didn't say I was misunderstood. Maybe I created the misunderstanding. 
Maybe in an unguarded moment, I didn't choose my words properly, or I didn't clarify something, or I said something a little more carnal than spiritual. Maybe I didn't handle a situation well. Maybe I was tired. Have you ever been tired? You're not at your best when you're tired. Maybe you were blunt and transactional more than you were empathetic. You lacked warmth. Maybe you didn't have perspective and you're operating out of ignorance. Maybe you didn't measure up to someone's expectations, and people have many expectations for all of us all, all the time. But think about a time where, where maybe you stepped in it for one reason or another. Most of the time, most of the time, if a person loves you or, or they have any regard for you, you can go to a person, you can explain yourself, you can apologize. I'm not saying deflect and make excuses. I'm saying if you did something, you apologize. And it's reconciled and you move on together. That's what is normal. That's what should be within the body of Christ especially. But sometimes an opportunistic person will see a crack in your armor and they will try to exploit it and make it into something bigger. They'll discredit you on the basis of that thing. And their intention is malicious. They're not seeking peace. They aren't well-intentioned. They aren't seeking, you know, to do anything good. They want to weaken you. They want to damage you. And they have some other shadow mission that you may or may not even be aware of. And here's how you know that that's happening. It's because when you humble yourself and you go to them and sincerely after a prayer you humble yourself and you apologize and you try to take responsibility where you need to take responsibility and you hold out that gesture and what does that person do? They just keep escalating. That's how you know that they're not sincere. You're coming sincerely, but they keep escalating. And you come together and you leave feeling like even more damage and even more problems have exacerbated in our compound. And now there's even a greater divide. And then you're like, what's it going to look like to talk to them the next time? And you don't do it. Because you, don't, you see a diminishing return on your gestures of reconciliation. You come to heal the wound and they keep clawing it open. Ah, have you been there? One time, there was a, a, a person in our church I tried to reconcile with. And this, has happened, this happens from time to time, so you're not going to guess or know who it is. But this person was alienating all sorts of people. I wasn't even really interacting a lot directly with them. But they were on a team, and they were creating problems. They were very self-centered. And with any leadership role, sometimes the buck gets handed back to you, and, and you know, they... They don't get resolved and, and problems get bigger. And if you as a leader don't deal with a problem, you become the problem. So you don't want to be the problem leader. So you, you're just like, okay, I'll talk to this person. I'll try to, you know, curtail the situation and get it back in bounds. And I spoke to this person about how their behavior was impacting the people around them on their team and in the body. And I had to put certain limits on them because I didn't want more people getting hurt and it wasn't a good situation. But then this person's reaction was, they felt betrayed by me. They thought I would be in their corner no matter what they did or said or acted. They felt betrayed. And they made that very clear to me. And no matter how hard I tried to set context and bring awareness, they didn't have self-awareness. I tried to bring some awareness. To, they just kept saying the same thing over and over. And it was driving me crazy. They kept saying, John, I'm just, I'm just hurt. I'm like, okay. Tell me about it. Tell me how you're... And they, we'd go through it all... And, and I would say, okay, well, here's what's going on. Here's, I'm just really, really hurt. 
And they just kept coming back to that. So I listened and listened some more. They didn't want healing. They wanted blood. They wanted something else. And so in Nehemiah chapter 6, we read that Sanballat sent Nehemiah this message again and again. A fifth time he sends the message by his aid. But the fifth time, the message morphed and changed. He had an open letter. You, you, you love these open letters? They go on the internet. They go on News Channel 20. Everybody knows about it. We're doing an open letter as if that's going to, like, that's supposed to elevate everybody's awareness of this scene. And in this open letter, it was written, Nehemiah, it's reported among the nations. A little exaggeration there. And Geshem agrees. Oh, the, the, Geshem, the clown, the one that's been, yeah. Geshem, he sees it too. That you Jews are planning to rebel. And that's why you're building this wall. You have some sinister plot to usurp the king Artaxerxes in Persia. According to these reports, you, Nehemiah, are to become their king. You're building a little castle here and you're going to be a king with his own kingdom. That's what's going on here. And... You've even set up prophets in Jerusalem in different places that at the strategic time, they're going to say on your behalf, there's a new king in Judah. There's a new sheriff in town. These rumors are going to be heard by the king in Persia, by King Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah, why don't you come down to the Valley of Ona, to the village, so we can sort this out and confer together. Same agenda, much different stratagem, right? When Satan can't do one thing with you, he'll try a metamorphosis. He'll, he'll, he'll throw a different face at you. And now it's a face of disparagement. Your character is in question. The integrity of your work and project is in question. And it's up to you to sort it out with us. And we're not satisfied. And so we're putting even, this is a game that's being played. Now, how do you put out a brush fire? Actually, that might be more of a forest fire. How do you put out a forest fire? You know how quick it goes from a spark all the way up to a forest? I mean, you blink, and the thing just goes, malicious rumors. They ju it just gets fanned into a full flame. Why? Because of the oxygen of gossip. The oxygen of gossip will feed the biggest fire the fast, like faster than anything, right? Nehemiah says in verse 8, I replied to them, there's nothing to these rumors that you're spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. If you've ever been disparaged wrongly and you get to the root of it, like you hear things and you hear parts of things and you're like, what is going, like what was that, like what, what's an example of what, like you're, you're trying to piece it together. But when you finally get to the bottom of it and you see how the whole telephone game worked and how the whole thing evolved from, from this into this into, and you've been the object of it, and I have at times, you know, it's like humans are very inventive. We're very creative, especially when we're playing the telephone game and doing gossip and, and you combine social media. It's like, you know, this whole thing blows up. How did Nehemiah deal with it? How do you put out that kind of a fire? You keep building. How much time and energy do we waste giving oxygen trying to defend the work of God? We're not doing the work when we're together. We're talking about the rumors, we're talking about the threat, the danger. What are we not talking about? People, transformation, the gospel, the kingdom of Christ. We're talking about 
what this person wrote in some stupid open letter over here. And, you know, like, it deserved to be thrown in the trash can, but we're giving oxygen to and And we're spending all this energy, right, as le- or you at your dinner table, like, how am I going to respond? How am I going to pr- defend God's work? Or how am I going to defend my character, which is even harder to do than God's work? You know, of course you're going to defend your, like, you're guilty. Like, the more you try to defend, the more guilty you look. Like, there's no way to win the game when you're discredited. So what's the best response most often? It is, hand me another brick. Just keep building what God wants you to build. And when you're building an active, that is the best offense and defense. You will starve the rumor mill if you just keep on keeping on with the things that God has put in front of you. When you feed the other stuff with oxygen, you stop, it gets worse. Like, just keep working, right? Get back at it. That's, what, that's one of those things that we learn from Nehemiah in this story. Isn't it incredible? This is all in one chapter. So, distraction. Okay, now we're going to denigrate your character. All right. Good response. Nehemiah nipped that one in the book. What's next? Morphs in, discouragement morphs yet again into another face. It morphs into intimidation next. So verses 10 through 14, Nehemiah 6. I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of some, son of some, you know, I've been a preacher. I can't say these names even after all these years. And this guy says to me, Nehemiah writes, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the doors because they're coming to kill you. You know, they couldn't draw him out into, oh, no. So they try to push him into a closet, into a corner, into a, a, a space and, and try to isolate him and marginalize him. You know, it's just, it's the same agenda. It's just another tactic. Let's meet at the house of God inside the temple and let's shut the doors. They're coming to kill you. And uh, they're going to come tonight to kill you. That's what this guy says. But Nehemiah says two things. Number one, should I, a man like me, run away? I think that's a good question. Should we run away because of threats and intimidation? Should we give the bullies their victory? Or should we keep working? Should a man like me run away? That's a great question. But he also asks another question, and that is, how can someone like me enter the temple and live? You know, Nehemiah wasn't a priest. Uh, only priests could enter the temple. And only certain priests on a very limited timeline could, could go into the inner parts of the temple or the holies of holies. And, and it was a very, who am I, Nehemiah says, to go into the temple? I will not go. And the light bulb comes on, obviously. He, realized, he says, I realize that God didn't send this turkey because the prophecy, the content of it, isn't congruent with the word of God. I knew that this wasn't one of God's prophets, even though that's who they said they were. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired this person, and he was hired so that I would be intimidated and do as he suggested and sin and get a bad reputation in order that they discredit me in order that the work stop. Now it's like all, like, it's just, it's a morphine situation. And Nehemiah says, God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done. And remember the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets that have wanted to intimidate me, the hired prophets, the hired hands. One of the most important lessons I've learned about facing discouragement, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, 
whether it's the face of distraction, the face of disparagement, the face of intimidation, I've learned Nehemiah 6.9, Nehemiah praise. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. Sometimes the way out of all those other discouragements is to do something physically, and sometimes all the rest will get back in alignment. Get back at the task, whatever it is, tangibly. Like, get back at, and ask God to give you strength to do it. And ask God to give you the will. And ask God to give you the joy. And ask God to fight the evil one for you. In Nehemiah 6.14 these are interspersed throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, are these little breath prayers that we need to learn. Nehemiah prays in chapter 6, verse 14. My God, remember these clowns and what they've done to intimidate me. So I, I have to keep learning, and, and I'm sure you do too, and relearning to pray and let God shoulder the discouragement. Let God fight for you. By the way, uh. There was one night, and this was several years back, and there was a little brush fire that uh, spread through our church and a forest, and it was based on false stuff, and it kind of grew, and it got, and, and, and several folks got involved, and I wanted to defend myself about something, and, and I wanted to defend the work that we're doing at Lake, and then I read through the Old Testament and New Testament. I, I, I skimmed, I was looking for every single place where it talks about how do you respond to discouragement? How do you respond when you're discredited, or, or anything like that. Like, what is, and I kept seeing these verses in the Psalms, even in the New Testament, that basically said, God will fight for you. You don't have to fight that fight. You, you keep working, and you keep doing what God has placed on you to do, and let God take care of the reputation of it. Let God defend the glory of his own name. Don't waste oxygen on it. Keep on keeping on. Keep building. And you pray and you ask God to give you whatever you need to keep doing that. That's how Nehemiah responds to discouragement. And it's brilliant for us. Now, I love Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. We love these kinds of things. The book of Nehemiah could end right here. Here's what it says. The wall was completed in 52 days. This is the, uh, the emotional moment at the end of the movie when it's like, oh, finally. Right. 52 days the wall is built. And when all of our enemies heard that it was done, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and they lost their confidence. And they realized that this task was being accomplished by God. That is an awesome thing, isn't it? Period, end of the book. We're only halfway through the book of Nehemiah. Are you serious? Like what comes at? This is the moment, but there's still more to come. Now, discouragement isn't something that occasionally visits us. I was talking to somebody after first service. I was like, discouragement is life in a lot of ways. We face it continually in one form or another, in one, with one face or another. It is our experience. We live this life out. We even thrive in the face of discouragement. And, 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 and one of the reasons there's so much discouragement is this. Because what God is asking us to do is infinitely bigger than just us. And so when we try to do it in the power of the flesh, when we try to do what God wants, what he wants to build, what he wants to do, disciples, harvest, whatever you want to feel, it's so much bigger than us that if we even think about doing it without God, even just a little bit, we realize the discouragement, we realize how impossible it is. Uh, if you could do it in your own strength, God wouldn't get any glory from it. But the fact that there's no humanly way 
possible to do a thing. There's no human calculation to like, how did that person get the strength? How did they have the stamina? How did they endure? How did... The fact that a thing gets finished, there's only one conclusion that people can make. It's that, oh, God must have accomplished it. God, he must have been part of it. They must have been praying. Like, they realize there's a divine equation, not just a human equation there. And so they realized that God was in on this thing, and they really didn't have a chance. Now, a word of warning. These verses aren't even... Not only are they not the end of the, of, of the book, they're not even the end of the chapter. Because discouragement is going to morph again, and there's another face. And I'll just read these verses, and you can kind of think about it. I don't, I don't know exactly how to label it, but during those days, the nobles of Judah sent a whole bunch of letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came back, and, and for many in Judah, they were bound in oath to him. Here's Nehemiah, there's a new sheriff in town, they're calling him a king to discredit him, they're doing all this stuff, but, but they'd made oaths that they felt obligated to keep to Tobiah, the enemy of God. And there was marriages and son, son-in-laws and daughters-in-laws and all this stuff, verse 18, but verse 19, these nobles kept mentioning Tobiah to me. They kept mentioning his good deeds of things that he'd done for them. And they reported my words back to Tobiah, and, and Tobiah you know, he's really a good person, Nehemiah. You've misjudged him. You've misjudged your enemies. And he's really a good person. Meanwhile, Nehemiah's getting all these letters and Tobiah's continuing to intimidate him. It's like, I got the evidence right here, but you guys are telling me he's a good person. Like, come on. They don't trust the leader. They think something else. You know, when you're the most successful and you've accomplished something great, and you can point at a wall, and it was done in 52 days, and it was definitely a miracle of God. That's often the moment where we have the greatest weakness, where we're willing to make a compromise of our integrity, of the truth. I can't tell you, like, I, I could give you a sense of it, but it's overwhelming. How many Christian leaders, even recently, that I would argue have done extraordinary works uh, for the kingdom of God, works that still stand because they're so great, because they were part of something that was amazing. But in a moment of success, when they were at the pinnacle of it, they compromised some standard. They gave in to power. They gave in to the flesh. To the flesh, they, they had an affair. They they crossed some sexual line. They took the money, or what, it's usually one of those three things, right? Nehemiah hits a pinnacle, and discouragement morphs, and he has to maintain his standard and say, "This is what's true." And he has to stick to it. And, and so I just want to say that there's a lot left in Nehemiah. And, the, and, and in many ways, the hardest stuff is still ahead. The physical, church builds a building, people build a wall. It's hard. It's costly. That's not the hardest work that we got to do. The inner work spiritually that has to yet happen is going to be the hardest of all and the most discouraging of all. And we're going to look at what it looks like to do spiritual leadership through the rest of this series. But you know what? Here's a, here's a preview. Just keep building. Keep saying, hand me another brick. Keep praying, God, strengthen my hands. God, defend your work. Defend your servant. Defend your people. Fight for us. Another brick. Hand me another brick. You know, I'm one-handed builder. Hand me another brick. I don't care. There's something about continuing in the work in the face of discouragement 
There's a kind of healing and strength in that. This morning, some of you are very distracted by, in a malicious way, by those who are trying to impede what God's doing in your life, in your family, or in your world. There there are some of you that have been disparaged wrongly. There are some of you that have been intimidated. There are some of you that are maybe in even a moment of success. You know, things are really, really good, but there's a temptation that you've entertained or maybe a, a temptation that you've succumbed to. This is your moment to pray to God and say, give me a way out. Deliver me from the evil one. To pray, Lord, strengthen my hands. Give me the will today. Give me the perspective of wisdom. You know, he generously provides wisdom without finding fault. Give me wisdom mentally. Give me the will emotionally. Give me protection from the schemes of the evil one spiritually. You can ask God to meet you in whatever your experience of discouragement is or whatever face you're encountering. You can ask God to join you there today and lead you through it. Not around it, but through it. And may the work of God continue. Let's say this together. Hand me another brick, please. That's a good prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that the evil one will not take hold and disrupt the work you're doing in our lives, our families, our church, and our world. We pray that you would strengthen our hands and give us the will and give us the wisdom. And thank you for your word. And thank you for the faith that extinguishes the arrows of the evil one. Thank you for giving us everything we need in Christ Jesus to be strengthened for this great task, this great harvest field that you've put before us. May your work in us and through us flourish. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.